take your Bible with me and let's go back to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We began looking at this chapter last week. We'll continue as we finish going through it from verses 13 through verse 23. It's good to see you gathered together this morning. Merry Christmas. It is a wonder, wonderful privilege to be joined together as the family of Christ in one body. And we are gathered to celebrate and worship him. So I pray that you would see this day, this even hour, as a great opportunity and blessing from our God. Christmas is a time of contrasts. Many of us find Christmas to be a time of joy. That's how most of us think of Christmas. We're with family and we're having fellowship. We consider it to be one of the happiest times of the year, perhaps. Yet for others among us, it's not as joyous. It may bring to mind great feelings of loss. Of a family member who's no longer with us. Of loneliness, even pain. Perhaps it brings memories of what used to be or what you long for. Or expectations that have gone unmet. The beauty of Christianity though in the gospel is that it does not paint this rosy picture that's not realistic. That all will be well immediately. It doesn't pretend that the ugliness of sin, of a dark world doesn't exist even for a moment. And I'm thankful for how our worship has been laid out this morning. This contrast has been demonstrated in what we've sung, the scriptures that we've heard read. And our passage this morning deals with this theme as well. As it tells us that Jesus has come to bring light into our darkness. Of all the major world religions, Christianity alone tells us that God entered into our suffering and loss and pain. And he went so far to endure that pain, he gave up his life. So that we might live with him in eternal joy in the next. That's the uniqueness of the Christian message. Think of it. This is the story of the Bible, isn't it? Out of darkness comes light. Several months ago now, a couple years ago, we were in the book of Samuel. Do you remember how that story began? It began in the midst of darkness and sadness and longing and grief. And yet God in his miraculous way provided a leader for his people. Think of how often the Bible works like this. We see it with Moses in Egypt. God's plan to deliver his people is threatened by the decree of Pharaoh to kill all the newborn baby boys. And yet God preserves Moses in a very surprising way, bringing him into the household of Pharaoh himself in order that he might deliver God's people from their bondage. Now our passage this morning will again show us great darkness, sin, We see terrible loss, the massacre of innocent children, and yet that's not the overriding message. We see Satan behind the threats against God's provision of a savior. This is a cosmic battle. And yet even he, in all his power, cannot thwart or even begin to threaten God's plan. The true Christmas story, the gospel, tells us that the light of Christ shines brightest in 
the darkness. That light is most needed and most welcomed in the moment of greatest night. Like a jeweler who places a black cloth underneath a glistening jewel to reveal its brilliance. So God does that in this passage, showing us the brilliance of God's unconquerable will. His determination to provide us with his son. In our passage, God reveals that in the darkest moments in human history, there is still hope because our God is sovereign and is at work in each of our lives. Let's look at our text this morning. We'll look and we'll back up just one verse and read in verse 12 all the way down through verse 23. This is the word of our God to us, his people. Verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they, the Magi, departed to their own country by another way. Now when they, the Magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he, Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. Let's ask for God's blessing and help. As we look at this text together, Father, we come before you recognizing our need to turn our hearts to you again. Our minds are filled with all kinds of wonderful and good things and good gifts from our Father. And yet it's easy for us to be distracted in these moments. There have been many things that have already occurred this morning. So may we pause, give you our attention, our thoughts, our hearts, our will. Lord, we want you to be our king. We want that to be true. And yet we confess in our own pride and self-service, we make ourselves the king. We confess that now, even as we begin to look at this passage that establishes who you are. May you make that so in our lives that you reign supreme in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen passage this morning is broken into three brief and separate episodes. The focus of the text is somewhat geographical. We're moving from city to city, from Bethlehem to Egypt, Ramah, and then finally Nazareth. 
I hope you noticed as we read each section that they end similarly with a statement about a word of prophecy being fulfilled as Jesus and his family move from one place to the next. Look back down in the text and see if you notice that word fulfilled. This tells us what Matthew is trying to accomplish. He's trying to give us a message about something particular about who Jesus is and why he came. You can even move back to chapter 1 verse 22 to see the first time it appears. What question is Matthew seeking to answer for his readers? Why is he giving us this information specifically? He's seeking to demonstrate with utmost clarity what he states in the very first verse. That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Anointed One, the Promised One of God, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Now for the Jewish audience to whom Matthew was writing, this is still a hard sell. This is not what they had hoped for or expected or wanted. They wanted freedom politically, temporally. They weren't wanting a spiritual king. He didn't fulfill the expectations the way that most Jews wanted. But Matthew argues he is God's appointed redeemer and king. And God's will to bring him as the deliverer of sinners cannot, will not be stopped. Our text will teach us this morning that God's long-awaited Messiah fulfills his promises to rescue his people. So as our passage is divided by the movements of Joseph, the child and his mother, we see them first escape to Egypt. Then Matthew tells us of Herod's wicked revenge before we see Jesus arrive in Nazareth. Now notice as we move through the text, how often here we're told of some rather unusual emphasis on God's very specific revelation through dreams. That's not common, actually, throughout the book of Matthew. There's something happening here that Matthew's doing with this. It tells us that God accomplishes all his will, no matter what human opposition may come against him. He gives Joseph very clear, assuring instructions. Let's first look at the escape to Egypt in verses 13 through 15. Now, when they, the Magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. So God now speaks again to Joseph through a dream. As he'd spoken to him before in chapter 1. Telling him to take Mary as his wife. He tells him of the immediate danger he's in with his family in Bethlehem. Now Joseph is to stay put in Egypt until God again speaks to him. And tells him where to move to next. He knows this is at least in some ways temporary. It's likely they don't stay in Egypt a very long time. Herod is getting old and he is ill. He'll die very soon. And then in verse 15, Matthew provides us with the first of three fulfillment sayings. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now what Matthew is going to do here and he's intent on doing throughout his gospel is to show how the Old Testament is echoed. It's fulfilled in the life of Jesus. We hear that echo louder the farther away we get from that Old Testament prophecy. Hosea would never have thought of this. The Holy Spirit did. But when Hosea wrote it, he didn't know exactly how God would fulfill this in Christ. 
And the echo here is greater than that past event. Commentator Leon Morris writes consistently, Matthew sees scripture as fulfilled in Jesus. Thus the outworking of the divine purpose is accomplished in him. Matthew is here referring to Hosea 11. Verses 1 and 2 of that chapter speak of Israel in family relationship. Israel as God's child. And Matthew's going to take that and say this is about Jesus himself. He writes, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. It's talking about Israel coming out in the Exodus. Hosea continues, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. In Hosea, the context there is that God is pointing out the sins of his people. Their continued disobedience and spiritual adultery. And in spite of his delivering them through the exodus, through this incredible miracle. Israel just keeps going back to their sin. And yet God says in his loving kindness, he will not abandon them. The point here is that Jesus is the true center of scripture. And the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises of salvation for his people. Jesus is reliving the epic of Israel's story. And what what Matthew wants to convince us of in this passage is that God's deliverance of his people in the Old Testament has been pointing forward to his deliverance, the spiritual deliverance of God's people through Christ. Those were promises made in the Old Testament. And in Jesus, those promises are fulfilled Just think of some of the parallels beyond what we see in these verses between what's happening in the Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus. I'll give you just two this morning. You've probably heard them before. Jesus chooses 12 disciples. Why 12? He's reconstituting the people of God around himself rather than a nationality. I'm not making any point about God's promises to Israel as a nation. There are distinctions there. But this is a theological connection that Matthew is making for us right here. That the New Testament writers do throughout the New Testament. Jesus is the center, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Secondly, consider Jesus' temptation in the wilderness for 40 days. Remember some of those details. Specifically, he's tempted at the end of those 40 days to seek physical provision for his hunger outside the will of God, just as Israel was tempted. And yet where Israel failed, he obeys. The point is that he completely fulfills and obeys God's will in the place of sinners. So that God's people may be righteous before God with an alien righteousness provided to them. Jesus obeys all of God's will as God's true son. Through Christ, God will rescue his people again, but now from sin. He's ever determined to love sinful, unworthy people who rebel against him in selfishness over and over again. God's not done with his people. Even when they're ignoring him, even when they're missing all that he's done in coming, he still pursues sinners. This teaches us that our God delivers his people 
supernaturally. Consider the overwhelming provision of God for this family. The Magi have just given them gifts that would fund their urgent flight from Bethlehem. They didn't know they would be in need of these funds. The Magi couldn't have known that. God also speaks to Joseph very clearly, uniquely, deliberately, commanding him exactly where and when to run. Think of how assuring this would have been to Joseph. God is going before him, providing the roadmap. Joseph really doesn't have any decisions to make here. Get up and go. Again, in Luke's gospel, the Lord leads his people through the angel's pronouncements. The angel shows up and speaks to Zechariah and to Mary. But in Matthew's gospel, he focuses on God's directing Joseph and the Magi through these dreams. And that method of revelation is almost exclusively found in these first two chapters. The only other time we see God communicating in a dream in Matthew is at the end of the book, chapter 27, where in a dream, God reveals to Pilate's wife that Jesus is innocent. And that just makes the point that God is very intent on getting Joseph and his Messiah where he needs to be protected from a wicked ruler. He's focusing on God's supernatural guidance, again displaying God's sovereign determination to accomplish his plan. But we also notice in this that God delivers his people ordinarily. Now what does that mean? It demonstrates God's work supernaturally in our lives through ordinary obedience. Note the simple, faith-filled obedience of Joseph. This would not have been an easy journey for a young family with a brand new baby. But Joseph trusted the word of God. He could have said to himself that he could get a better start in the morning when the road, the way was less dangerous. When they'd had plenty of sleep. This would have been a 750 mile journey to Egypt. Probably to Alexandria there where there was a group of Jewish refugees. This wasn't an easy trip for him. But we see Joseph over and over in these first two chapters. Obeying God. Even though he couldn't have understood all that God was telling him. He obeys anyway he couldn't see every turn in the bend of God's will but he didn't demand to before he obeyed now we may be tempted to make excuses for ourselves by thinking well if I if I had a dream like this that told me what to do and what job to take and what person to marry and where to go next sure I could obey that as well but we have revelation we have all that we need And God's word is even more clear. Maybe not in some of the very specific details that Joseph has given here or in all the ways that we want, but in the overall direction and course of our lives, God's word is clear and sufficient. In the example of the Magi and Joseph in Matthew chapter 2, we're provided with godly demonstrations of people receiving limited revelation and obeying following the lord's direction even when they still have questions even when they don't have all the answers so the question for us is do we obey the revelation we know and have that's a challenge isn't it 
Where does that question prick your own conscience this morning? What area does that highlight in your own mind immediately? Where might I not be obeying? Where do you need to confess an area of disobedience in your relationship with the Lord? Secondly, in verses 16 through 18, we see the massacre in Bethlehem. Matthew now tells us that Herod realizes that he has lost his best opportunity to dispatch this latest rival king, this king of the Jews. And once he does, he's enraged. He's furious. It says that he believes that the wise men have tricked him. But really, he, he feels tricked, but they just didn't fall for the trap because they were warned in a dream. Now, in order to still try to accomplish his plan to dispose of this rival, he issues this abhorrent decree that all baby boys two years old and younger will be killed in Bethlehem. This is a small town, probably no more than a thousand inhabitants, but great anguish and suffering has now come to them. To get what he wants, Herod is willing to destroy innocent human lives. This is state-sanctioned murder of infants. We are and we should be horrified by such evil and senseless injustice. Now, as we discussed last week in the first half of the chapter, Herod was a very wicked and self-centered king. Very paranoid and suspicious. He had several family members killed out of fear that they were conspiring against his power, his throne. He kills his favorite wife out of ten, three of his own children. The Jewish historian Joseph records how Herod dies. It's disgusting. It's miserable. He concludes, though he's not a believer, that he was under the judgment of God. This man's death would be extremely painful and dishonorable. Sometime not long after these events, Herod began to have even greater intestinal pain. The illness that he had was beginning to finally end his life. He was bleeding internally. It was found out later that he had worms eating him alive from the inside out. A symptom of this fatal illness was incredibly loathsome breath. And doctors had to be coerced to get close enough to treat him. But they could do nothing. He would die not many days later after these events from this disease. Now in no way should we take delight or a feeling of revenge in this wicked ruler's death. God says revenge is his alone. He alone has the wisdom and right and power to execute justice. And yet we recognize that Herod reaped what he sowed. This man will suffer for all eternity for his self-willed rebellion. And this, this is the most frightening and tragic part of the story. You see, the newborn king, the newborn Messiah is nearby. Herod has revelation to go and explore and examine And even a wicked king like Herod could have been saved from his sin if he trusted in this king. Why does Matthew record such a tragic story here at the birth of the Messiah? Why does the Holy Spirit want us to know details like this? 
Well, Matthew includes this event to again demonstrate that God is still at work in the darkness. Herod made his own free choice. And yet even that powerful man's wicked choice could not interrupt or stop or derail God's plans. Psalm 2 declares, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. Matthew states clearly that even the grief of these families was prophesied hundreds of years earlier. And even they proved that Jesus was his king. Now what is this prophecy referred to in Jeremiah that Matthew has just told us about? It's from Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15. The passage, the specific verse, refers to Rachel in poetic, picturesque language as the mother of all Israel, the patriarch's wife. She's grieving over those children who are taken away into Babylonian exile. These mothers will never see their children again. And yet Jeremiah 31 only contains this one note, just one note of grief. Because God declares he will bring light out of that darkness. He will restore his people again and bring them back to himself. He will make a new covenant with them where he will give them a new heart that wants to obey and follow and love their God. The point is that in spite of the great grief and sadness of loss, God is not finished with his people. We don't read life and our theology through our circumstances. And the same is true even more so here in Bethlehem. In spite of the wicked actions of Herod, the great grief and loss, there is greater eternal joy to come through the one that's preserved from this death. This again teaches us that our God never allows pain and suffering to be the last word. Perhaps it might be the last word in a temporal existence, but it's not the last word in our eternal life to come. Elizabeth Elliot writes, of one thing I am perfectly sure, God's story never ends with ashes. To God, nothing is finally lost. All the scripture's metaphors about the death of the seed that falls into the ground, about losing one's life, about becoming the least in the kingdom, about the world's passing away, all these go on to speak unspeakably to something rather unspeakably better and more glorious. Loss and death are only the preludes to gain and life. She writes again, and suffering is never for nothing. I cannot say to you, I know exactly what you're going through. But I can say I know the one who knows. And I've come to see that it's through the deepest suffering that God has taught me the deepest lessons. That's what's being portrayed here. God's doing more than these people could see. He's offering more of himself. He's entering into their pain with his own son. Certainly there are those here among us who face loss and heartache that I don't know that you don't know of one another. But can you see that God through Christ speaks into your heart and has done something about it eternally? 
He sent his own son into this world to restore all the chaos and hurt and damage that we ourselves do by our own sinfulness, that we have to be a part of in a world that is broken by sin. And he does this by suffering the exact same kind of loss. Just think about that for a moment. God will know the loss of his own son. And he chooses that willingly. We have a savior well acquainted with our grief. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. Hebrews tells us he's the great high priest who's faced all that we will face in this life and he's interceding for us. He weeps over death at the tomb of Lazarus' friend. He pleads for Israel to turn to him from their sin. And the passage again is revealing to us the gospel in the Christmas message. He demonstrates his mercy to unfaithful sinners over and over and over again. And now we turn to the third movement. In verses 19 through 23, the return to Nazareth. The last verses of chapter 2 now recount Joseph leading the family to settle here in this small town of Nazareth. Herod has died and God directs Joseph's steps again. Through this dream, Joseph obeys. He settles in Nazareth finally and he is again fulfilling prophecies of old. We read again, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, which prophets in the Old Testament spoke of this? Where do we read of Nazareth in the Old Testament? Well, the answer is we don't. We don't. Nazareth isn't founded yet. There is no Nazareth in the Old Testament. So how are we to understand this fulfillment statement? Well, one clue is that this statement is a little bit different than the last two in that it's spoken of by the prophets plural. There's something else more general happening in this fulfillment statement. Remember when Philip comes and tells Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And how does Nathanael respond? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus did not meet messianic expectations. He was from a nowhere place. He was from insignificance and poverty. He was a nobody. That's not who the Messiah would be. Isaiah 53.3 tells us this as well. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. The king wasn't supposed to come like this. And yet Matthew says, here he is. Here he is. Our God delights to use those who seem insignificant to accomplish his will. In this passage, Matthew demonstrates Jesus, the virgin-born son of Mary, is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He had come to save his people from their sins. And Jesus, this child, notice how he's in focus. Even when it refers to Mary, it refers to Mary as his mother. 
This child is the new Moses, God's appointed and provided leader and true son who will retrace all the steps of Israel and save them by his perfect obedience to God's will. This is highlighting God's provision and nothing, nothing, nothing can stop it. He would not be well received by his own. He did not come in the way that he was expected or wanted. And yet he had come in the flesh. God's plan to bring his son in in the world in the fullness of time will not be stopped. He'll deliver his people. Not in an exodus from physical slavery, but spiritual bondage. Not just to bring his people back into a homeland, but one day to bring them home to be with him Forever. God's eternal, sovereign, resolute will to save mankind is moving forward. God says in Isaiah 46, 9, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand. And I will do all that I please. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted. You who are now far from my righteousness. I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away. And my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion. My splendor to Israel. This declares what is said elsewhere in Isaiah. Our God reigns. That's the beauty of Christ entering into this world. Our God reigns. Now we should also consider how these passages demonstrate God's determination to accomplish his plan of salvation. Also provides to us how he will do this. This is what is so humbling and incredible about the incarnation. Each of these scenes show us what Jesus will face. They're almost foreshadowing the hardship of his life. Jesus will be in exile from his own people, never truly embraced or understood or welcomed. At one point in his life, his own mother and siblings will want to force him to go home because his teaching is too radical even for them. They think he's outside of his mind. He would be hated and opposed by the rulers of this world. Even here, from the very beginning of his life, Satan is continuing to rebel. And being the murderer that he is, he's seeking to end the life of God's promised one. The struggle of Genesis 3 between the serpent and the seed of the woman has now begun in earnest. And as we think of this Christmas message that Christ came into the world, doesn't it show us just how astounding the incarnation is? What a world to enter into. What a mess. Who would ever willingly volunteer for an assignment like this? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He came to save sinners like you and me. So how will we respond? He is the king of kings. And here in Matthew 2, we see two main reactions. One that says, I don't want your kingship. And one that says, I don't get everything you're doing, but I will follow. I'll obey. So will you follow? Or are you threatened by his right 
to every area of your life? Will you surrender your own will to his? Or are you afraid it may cost you more than you want to give? What are you really living for right now as we end another year, 2022, and you evaluate, where am I spiritually? What are you living for? Is he king to you in name only? Are you following? Where are you placing your hope? If you don't know him as savior this morning, this passage tells you Christ came to the world to save sinners. You must turn from your own willful rejection of his right to rule in your life, surrender and follow him, placing all your hope and confidence in him for salvation. Church family, we're called to follow him, to submit to him with our entire lives. We're to embrace ordinary, simple, faith-filled obedience and continually seek his grace to live in this response. So are you following this king? God always, always keeps his word. He accomplished his will in Christ's life even when things looked bleakest and he will do the same for you. That's what this message says. If he will do all of this to accomplish his will in Christ's life, he'll do the same for his own people who are called his children now. So trust him, love him, follow. Let's pray. Our gracious king in heaven, we rejoice that you have come. You've entered a broken world that you entered suffering to the fullest. You didn't stand outside and tell us that we had to clean ourselves up and behave. You came and obeyed where we could not. You provided us perfect righteousness. You paid our sin debt. You've offered to make us your own children. Father, help us on this day, Christmas Day, to recognize the beauty and value of the incarnation. That God in his holy will from before creation began determined to make salvation possible. To redeem a people for your own name's sake. So Father, may we live worthy of the calling to which we've been called as your people. And if there's one here this morning who does not know Christ as Lord, as King and Savior, may he or she turn and recognize the great joy and peace of knowing that all is well. Not perhaps even in this life, but in the much, much greater life to come. We praise you. We worship you for your gift. In Jesus' name.